Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. All right, we're turning to the Word of God this morning, and um, our passage is Matthew 15, 21 through 31. It's a very interesting passage to my mind, one of the most fascinating in all the Gospels, and I trust that you'll find it so as well. And there is a certain element of, of confusion, confusion or mystery, I would say, in this passage. And I, I think it's honestly a passage that's one of the most glorious in all the Gospels. How can you say that? They're all glorious. But in my mind, it rises. And, and perhaps in yours. And yet, uh, it is, it's a passage that is not necessarily, I think, a, a favorite of preachers to preach on because it's, it's a strange passage. It's a, a mysterious passage. I don't think the mystery is as great, and I don't think the, the tendency to shy away from it does credit to what we read or to the, the biblical logic, but um, we'll see how that goes as we start our are as we start into looking at it. But right now I ask you to stand as we read Matthew 15, 21 through 31. And Jesus went away from there. And there is the other side of the Galilee, uh, the Sea of Galilee, where, where he had gone with his disciples immediately after teaching the crowds and feeding the 5,000. So we have the feeding of the 5,000. We have the disciples leaving and going on a trip across the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus walking on the water, Peter saying, let me come to him, and then faltering and failing and going down, and Jesus say, saying to Peter, you have little faith, why did you doubt? Lifting him back up, they, they achieve land. And, uh, and then there's the confrontation with the parables, and that's probably in the region on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum, around that region. And now we read, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only... And the Greek there is maybe a little different. I, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She came and began to bow down before him. Now, let me just say, that's, that's an interesting difference in wording, but I think it amounts to the same thing, but I wanted you to know that. I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, it is not good to take children's bread and throw it to the dogs she said yes lord but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table then jesus said to her oh woman your faith is great it shall be done to you for you as you wish and her daughter was healed at once departing from there jesus went along by the sea of galilee and having gone up on the mountain he was sitting there and large crowds came to him bringing with them those who were lame crippled blind mute and many others and they laid them down at his feet and he healed them so the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking the crippled restored and the lame walking and the blind seeing and they glorified the God of Israel the word of the Lord 
Please be seated. Father, we pray that you will speak to us from your word and that you'll guide my lips. We ask, as Paul prayed, that the, the word, that when he came, that the word would not just be words, but it would be with power, that it would be by the Spirit, and that it would be the fruit of and the power of conviction. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I love this passage, and I suspect many of you do as well. It's a stirring passage. It grabs our souls, and, and yet at the heart of it, at the nub of it, there is something that is a little disconcerting, perhaps even um, something that we don't really want to think about. It is a picture of faith, and I want to speak to you about what is the essence of faith and how faith operates in the face of God's sovereignty and how faith operates in the face of God saying no to you. Some of you this morning have heard God say no to you. And you're thinking, well, my faith has not been rewarded. My faith has not been effective. I haven't seen God operate in the way that, that my faith led to, in the, the way that my faith requested him to do. But everyone here, all of us, if not this morning, in the last year, have seen something like this. And probably we can denominate our lives by the moments where God said no to us. And we went, what? And we said, but my faith, my trust, you, me. And so that's what we have before us this morning in this story. Now, uh, my experience is that commentators in the commentaries they write on this passage mirror passages, mirror pastors in their approach to this passage in not really wanting to delve too deeply into it, not wanting to think too much about it because at the heart of it, it's hard. And often what I've heard and read about this passage focuses on the woman rather than on Jesus. Like what Jesus did here was, well, maybe a little bit unseemly, kind of embarrassing that he would take this tack with this dear poor woman. And yet this is a, a, the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the gospel of a Syrophoenician woman. Matthew is writing this so that we'll know Jesus and understand the character of Jesus. And so if we talk only about the woman, who is a great example here and a great example of faith, then we end up in, in a bad place because Jesus is the heart of this passage. And in fact, I think that it is possible on the basis of this passage to come some, to some, I mean, obviously false, even on the, if you pay attention to the passage, but false, uh, beyond being obviously false, false in a big way and in a way that has trapped many people, way of thinking about the nature of faith. And that conclusion that I think is often drawn from this passage is that faith is a, in a blinkered vision of an outcome. In other words, I don't see anything but this outcome. I see the outcome. I see the outcome. I see the mountain living in the heart of the sea. And yet that's a, a form of madness. You know, people who see things that are not and believe that they are there are in a sense often mad. And, and faith is not madness. All right? Faith is not convincing yourselves of something that is not and acting as though it is. Faith recognizes that the thing that is its object is not right now, is not there, is not seen, is not, but it operates on the basis of not the outcome that it wants, but on the basis of God. Faith is in God, not outcomes. 
And so this passage is often given as, well, faith. Look at the faith of this woman. She sees an outcome. No, it's not true. It's not the outcome. It is the God that's before her that is the object of her faith. We must understand this, okay? I want to say that initially. I want to say one more thing initially, and that is that I think that many pastors are afraid or embarrassed of Jesus here. They look at it and they say, why would he do this? And so they concentrate, they concentrate on the woman and they ignore what Jesus has done. I've said that already, but why do they do this? Well, I think there are two things here. One is scary, one is embarrassing. The scary one, I've already mentioned the embarrassing, like Jesus, get with it. You understand this is the, this is the complaint of the disciples. The woman is crying out saying, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Those are words, this is a passage that's just filled with parallels throughout the, the Gospels, you know? Just everywhere there are, there are parallels in the, in the Bible. And you think of the, um, the blind man who cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It's so much like it. And Jesus, of course, calls for that blind man and says, come here. But here we see with the Syrophoenician woman, the same cry, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Actually, it's on my daughter. It's kind of even more altruistic. Have mercy on my daughter. It's not even herself. And Jesus and the disciples are saying, send her away. Now, they're not saying, believe me, that is not them saying, you know, kick her out of the camp. Tell her no. What they're saying to Jesus is send her away by doing what she asks for, master. Come on. You know, just give her what she wants so that this woman who's coming after us and shouting and screaming, get rid of her. And the only way to get rid of this woman is to send her away with what she wants. That's what they're saying, okay? So uh, they're kind of embarrassed by him. And I think many of us are kind of embarrassed by what he does here. You know, doesn't seem like the sweet Jesus that I like to think of so the sweet Jesus of the Sunday school pictures that he ignores this one and then when he talks he says these kinds of things to her. and I think the, the the fear and there's a fear that's accompanied with the embarrassment and the fear is of the choice of God because God is sovereign and we see it here he's going to do what he wants to do and Jesus insists on the sovereignty of God here he says look I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel. It's a statement about God having a chosen people and God's eyes being upon the chosen people and a rejection of those who are not chosen, right? I mean, there is no other way to read it. And we know this to be true, that God has a chosen people and he has those that he has rejected. And how we operate based on these twin knowledges okay, that there are chosen and there are rejected, on the basis of that singular knowledge that we have that God is a great king and he does as he wills with the hearts of men, turning them like water courses, like ditches filled with water to irrigate land, turning them wherever he wants. He shapes our lives every moment, every day. And so we are, we're scared of it because Really, right here, we see something that we seldom see just so clearly, that God is rejecting someone. At least it appears that way, doesn't it? The sovereignty of God. 
So what do we make of this? And I think it is essential that we understand that there is a lot in this passage that is not talked about. And I'm not talking just about the woman, I'm talking about the verses that follow. But first, let me say, are you looking to God for something and hearing his no? If you are, this passage is for you. This is directly for you. It's hitting every chord in that symphony of your troubles and your sorrows or your needs or desires right here. Right, now I'm going to go on an excursus here. I'm going to go to the side to make what I think is a fundamental point that has to be seen if we're going to grasp what's going on between Jesus and this woman. And it's not one that is emphasized, but it's there. If you read the Bible, it's there, all right? This woman is the opposite of Peter. Peter, just moments ago, in time, you know, days ago, had failed in his faith. He had gone down out of fear. He had had to have Jesus raise him back up. He saw the winds and the waves. And frightened by them, he falls down, cries out, save me. It's not faith, it's just desperation. Jesus lifts him back up and says, oh, you have little faith. You know, come on, Peter. Here, this woman, the fear is not it's not winds and waves, it's, it's whatever the fear is that drives her, and I think there are probably two fears that are operative here. It's, it's much bigger than the winds and the waves. The one fear is the power of Satan and her daughter. She knows Satan has power. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing that turns you more towards God than knowing the power of Satan. I'm a Christian today because one drunken high night in college, Satan came into my room and I saw him. I didn't see him, I heard him. I felt him, and I turned to God. This woman is forged in the furnace of satanic oppression. And if you've had Satan come after you in some way, and you've come to fear Satan, then praise God because you understand your need of God. And so this woman has a fear of Satan, but there's a second fear as well, and that fear is the fear of Jesus because Jesus is, <laughs> I mean, he's not saying yes. And so... She has these great fears. I mean, they're bigger than Peter's on every side. And yet she perseveres and sees something, sees something. What is she seeing? Well, you know, this is the point at which many people say, well, she sees an outcome. No, she doesn't. She sees Jesus, whom she fears, and yet she perseveres. And Jesus says to her, oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter is, is healed. At once. Now the context of this story, all right, and bear with me because this is vital, I think, to understanding how the woman reacts, what Jesus says, all right. Jesus has gone from the north shore of the Sea of Galilee and he's gone north, even further north than he was when he was with his disciples in that desolate place, but not as far east probably. We think he's going straight north from Capernaum if he's in Capernaum, it's clearly he's going straight north and he's, he is going 
up to the region that is not by the Sea of Galilee, but that's by the Mediterranean Sea, a coastal region of cities and ports on the ocean. In the Old Testament, time after time, the region he's gone to is called the region of the coastlands. So the coastlands will hear, it says, or the coastlands this. This is the region Jesus has gone to. It's a populated region. It's not like that desolate region he had gone to that was just a little bit north and east. This is due north and on the coast. There are cities <coughs> and ports. He has left a region that, though it is at the far reaches of Judea, is still within Judea, which is northern Galilee, and he has gone to a region that is far outside Judea. He has gone from the people of Israel to the region of the Gentiles. And there's some suggestion at times, well, maybe there were Jews there, or maybe there were Jews in this area. There is not much evidence at all to support those contentions. The Jews lived where the Jews lived. If they weren't in exile, they lived in Israel. This was not a Jewish area. Now, we may think, wow, it's wonderful, it's weird, it's strange. How crazy it is that Jesus is up there in the midst of the Gentiles. Jesus on vacation. Jesus taking, he, he went in Israel and he couldn't escape people, so he goes way north so that he can really escape people and have a little bit of quiet time. But that is not supported by the passages in here. It's not pass supported by the, our passage or by Mark, the, who has a corresponding passage, same story at all. In fact, the idea that Jesus had nothing to do with Gentiles isn't true, if you've ever heard it or thought it. Simeon, who was the prophet in the temple when Jesus came to be, or to be dedicated as a, as a baby, uh, Simeon, the grand old man of the temple, took the baby in his hands, the baby Jesus, when Mary and Joseph brought him at eight days and said, now, Lord, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Not in the midst of your people, not in the midst of my people, not in the midst of the Jews. It says, the light of your salvation. They have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light of revelation to the Gentiles. And the glory of your people, Israel. Jesus is the light of God's revelation to the Gentiles. That's found in Simeon, the very first days of Jesus' life. We find that Jesus, the first who came and worshipped Jesus, were either the shepherds or the wise men, either Jews or Gentiles. But it's entirely possible that the first were the Gentiles. Gentiles came to worship Jesus. Jesus spent his first years in Egypt. Out of, the, out of Egypt I called my son was the prophecy. Jesus was with the Egyptians just like his people were not separate from the Gentiles. His first commendation of faith in his ministry, saying, whoa, what faith was of a Gentile? Cornelius, the Roman centurion, who asked through intermediaries if he would heal his servant. Jesus says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus is saying this Gentile, this Roman, has greater faith than anyone I've found in all of Israel. And then he adds... Remember, the centurion's not there. That's part of his faith. He just says, please, Jesus, I know you, you don't even have to come to me. Just do it. Jesus adds to all those who are listening. Says, he says, 
I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. Jesus says, I'm coming to bring salvation to the Gentiles, and there will be Jews who will be cast out. One of the most wonderful encounters that we see of Christ between Christ and an individual was with a Samaritan Gentile. The woman by the well in John, who he said, would you like to have water that you, once having drunk it, you'd never need to drink again. And, and at the end of that, remember, he, she brings him into her village and they all worship Jesus. It's a great story. It's Gentiles. At the last week of Jesus' life, we read that uh, some Greeks who worship God came to see Jesus in Jerusalem. They asked for an audience. And when that happened, Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, I am now being sought in Jerusalem by the Gentiles. They have come, and it's time. It is time for me to be glorified. God is working to bring his message to the Gentiles. It's not a denial that he's come for the Gentiles. It's a recognition that the, the knowledge of the Gentiles, of his glory and his ministry, is the apex of his ministry. And uh, just a, a verse or two later, Jesus then says of his coming death, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Not a rejection of the Gentiles, is it? It's a promise to you and me. In fact, where Jesus grew up, the region at the far north of Israel, where he lived and where he did most of his miracles and where the majority of his work and ministry took place was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. Isaiah 9 says, there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Galilee was so filled with Gentiles, so filled with these people that Jesus said he didn't come for, that it's called Galilee of the Gentiles. It was a mixed area, and that's where Jesus spent the majority of his ministry. That's not all, though, okay? Those are things sort of in the past, but we have here in these verses, what is right before us here is a major trip into a strictly Gentile territory by Christ. He goes first to Tyre, and it's a Mediterranean city 40 miles north of Capernaum and Galilee, city that, you remember King Hiram, who helped David established the stuff for the temple and then gave to Solomon the wood that he needed to build the temple. King Hiram had reigned over what is now Lebanon from, the cedars of Lebanon. It was Lebanon back then as well. Then he goes another 20 miles, about 60 miles north to the city of Sidon. And that's uh, 60 miles north of where he would have been at the far reaches of the north of Israel. Coastal cities, these two were. Together, the area is known as the coastlands, the prophet Jeremiah warned the nations of God's wrath. And one of the regions, he said, was Tyre, Sidon, and the coastlands. The coastlands. That whole region. Coastlands. Coast of the Mediterranean. But it is a theme in the prophet Isaiah that when the Messiah comes, the coastlands will wait for him. In other words, this very region that he's come to, the coastlands, Isaiah says, they will wait for the one who is the servant of the Lord. So we have in Isaiah 42, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. 
Then he says later, let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. <laughs> my righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. My arms will judge the peoples of the coastlands. Will wait for me, Isaiah 51. And for my arm, the coastlands, they'll wait for me, the servant of the Lord. And for my arm, they will wait expectantly. This was prophecy. Jesus' trip here was the result of the prophecy of Isaiah. He had prophesied it. Now, I'm making the point here that Jesus was with, ministering to, in the presence of Gentiles so often that in particular, this trip to the coastlands was a prophesied trip. Not a a casual vacation, not an anomaly, not just something he said by the Oh, let's go there. A serious trip taken for a serious purpose that lasted at least weeks and more likely for months. When Jesus traveled, he did not travel fast because of the crowds. His last trip to Jerusalem that was about an 80-mile trip because of the press of people took him, we think, maybe 18 months to accomplish that 80 miles. He's walking, and he's walking, he's ministering. Here he's going 60 miles north. You know, it just, it would take four days to walk it one way and four days back at a good clip. But he wasn't walking unaccompanied by people, he's with people. There is some evidence, one of the commentaries I read said, you know, when the, the feeding of the, the 5,000 took place, it immediately precedes this. When that took place... It says that Jesus made them sit on the grass. John tells about that miracle. And he says there was abundant grass, grass everywhere. And the people sat on this thick grass. But at the next feeding, which is just a little bit away. So what happens between that first feeding and the next feeding is his trip down to Capernaum and then leaving for there for the coastlands. Then he comes back and he goes to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, another Gentile area. And a crowd of 4,000 is fed. But it says there, Matthew said, in the first instance, he had them sit on the grass. Second instance, he says he made them sit on the ground. It's the same general area. And, and what this guy said is, look, the grass is gone. The, the grass of spring is gone. It's late summer. This is three months, potentially, that Jesus went north to the coastlands. And of course, what we see is that after Jesus is done going north, Jesus comes back down to the Sea of Galilee. We see that in verse 29 of our passage. Went along by the Sea of Galilee, having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there, and these large crowds come to him. This is, we know, on the east side. So he goes immediately from the coastlands to the region known as Grassa, after the main city, which was a notable Roman city called Gerash today, Grassa, a region that was entirely Gentile. So he goes from one Gentile region to another. And the feeding of the 4,000 is a feeding of Gentiles. And that's why At the end of our passage, we saw, so the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified, this is the only time this phrase is used in the entire New Testament, they glorified the God 
of Israel. Now you understand why it says they glorified the God of Israel because they're not Israelites. All right? Now, what's the point of this lengthy discussion about Jesus and the Gentiles visiting, working, ministering in the Gentiles' lands? Well, the point is this. So we turn to this encounter, this particular encounter with this woman who has this need and who receives this response from Jesus. And what is that response, by the way? What is Jesus' response to the woman? I know, I'm putting you on a, you don't want to answer because either way you think it's going to be wrong, right? Yeah, I'm doing that. But what is his response? Someone venture a a wrong answer. Is it a no? Well, it's not a no, is it? It is a yes, right? So we find a woman here whose daughter has taught her the power of Satan. But we find also a woman who knows somehow that Jesus has greater power. There's more though. Matthew tells us she cries, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Using a title, a messianic title, a title that speaks of, of Jesus as David's son who was also David's Lord. The, she says, have mercy on me, son of David. Lord, son of David. This is greater praise than any Jew has given him. She's calling him the Messiah. She's calling him God because the Messiah was understood throughout the Old Testament to be God. So reading Jeremiah, the Lord our righteousness is the Messiah's name. In Jeremiah, the Lord And that's Yahweh, the personal name of God. Messiah is the Lord. Yahweh, our righteousness. Everything Jesus is, everything he does, comprehended in that statement. The Lord, our righteousness. And here we have a woman who says, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. She comes begging, worshiping, falling at his feet. That's worship. And Jesus ignores her. And she continues, and the disciples say, send her away. And he finally answers, but he doesn't answer her. He says to his disciples, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel. Yet the woman does not give up. She continues. So Jesus turns to her directly and says, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. And she responds, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. She does not deny that God is a sovereign God who chooses whom he will. Not the slightest, not a hint of rebellion. Yes, God, you are sovereign. And yet knowing that God is in charge, Acknowledging, yes, I'm just a dog. She still goes to him and says, but please. I want to speak to you 
for just a few more minutes. I want to identify some things that are, that are essential to faith as we see it in this moment. But I want to say before we get there, if you think the sovereign choice of God is a hindrance to you, in whatever way it may be, maybe you've said, my children have not been chosen by God. I've given up, you know? They're not elect. Maybe you've said, God has said no about this or that. And some other thing. It's the sovereign choice of God. I've got to accept it. In the end, if you have biblical warrant for the thing you're seeking, and you declare God, in other words, you understand what I mean by biblical warrant. In other words, if you can point to a passage like Peter could point to Jesus saying, when he said, command me to come to you. And Jesus said, come. If you can point to the Bible and you can say that at this point in the Bible, God promises, not just because you want it, all right, but God has a promise that you're claiming, a command, that you be fruitful, all right, in some area, that you express his glory in some way and you have a command and you say well okay God has not chosen to do this you are not trusting in a sovereign God you are playing God you and I can't operate on that side of the equation we are not God, and we can't say what he has done or what he will do. And this is the glory of the one. She knows everything about the chosen people. She knows everything about Jesus having come for the lost sheep of the tribes of Israel. She knows all that, and she doesn't fight it, yet she still says, I know you too. I know that you're coming to the coastlands. I know that you're the light to the Gentiles. I know that you're the savior of the world and not just. And so, please, I'm a dog. I'm a dog, but I have these promises. Really, we call it faith, and it's the absence of faith. It's the opposite of faith, because we say, God has said something, but I know he and his sovereignty isn't going to do it, and I'm accepting that, and I'm living with it. It's not faith. Not faith. It's like the, the king who the prophet went to and said, ask for a sign from God. The king says, oh no, nope, 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 nope. I'm not going to test God. I will not ask for a sign from the God. I'm too holy to do that. Yeah, faith. He doesn't know God at all. You are not God. And while there is a biblical warrant, a command, a promise you cling to, you go to him and you wait for him. I'm not saying for your Mercedes. Believe me, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying for your country home. I'm not saying that. For the great things of God. Salvation for our children. The things that God has said to us and said, call on me for. For these things, for your own salvation, for your victories over sin, for the ability to put sexual temptation behind you forever, then go to God and do not claim that his sovereignty is opposed to you. So, what do we see? This woman knows about faith. It's based on God's word. She knows the word. She calls him Lord, Son of David. She understands, you know? Frame your 
your, your requests and your faith by the word of God, not by the desires of man. The God who says to us, if you honor my day, the Sabbath, by not doing what your heart desires, but by doing what I require, then I will honor you, I will give to you, and I'll reward you. He said, look, put your desires in what I want. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. Seek God. Don't seek these things. Seek God and God will reward you. Okay, second. This woman understands that God is true to his word. And she hears the Messiah say to her, and she's acknowledged him as the Messiah, say to her, nope, 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 nope. You know, I mean, well, I didn't come except for the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel and it's not right to give the dogs what belongs to the children. She hears that and she goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm a dog, I know it. She's not joking. I'm a dog, but I know you, God. I know you. I know your word. I know your love. I know what kind of a father you are. And she just perseveres. Not because she has an outcome in mind, but because she has God in her mind. And she knows God. She knows God. So she doesn't hear him say no. Chrysostom, church father, says, see, look at this one. He says, see her humility as well as her faith. And this is essential. Faith is humble. Faith sees God as big and myself as small. And if you are big and you think you can tell God what to do or you can even say to the others, well, God has decreed it this way. That's not humble. Chrysostom says, see her humility as well as her faith. For he had called the Jews children, okay? Jesus had called the Jews children. But she wasn't satisfied with this. She even called them, and when she talked about the dogs, masters. So far was she from grieving at his praise of others. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And so she's calling the children of Israel her master. But she says, let me have the dregs that come from their table. Behold the woman's wisdom. She didn't venture so much as to say a word against anyone else. She was not stung to see others praised. Nor was she indignant to be reproached. Behold her faith. When he answered, it's not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dog. She said, yes, Lord. Not no, Lord. Yes, Lord. He called them children. She called them masters. He used the name of a dog. She described the actions of a dog. Even a dog eats the crumbs. Do you see this woman's humility, he asks. So often God appears to frown at your requests. He clears his throat in heaven and you run for the hills in a panic thinking you just heard rumbles of thunder and you're convinced he's against you God never comes down to a people without causing them to fear every answer to prayer contains an element of fear that you touched the almighty that you came before the throne of heaven think of Israel seeing God in the fire and the cloud and fearing him fearing him fearing him especially when Moses went up into the fire and the cloud on Mount Sinai they ran from it a true father 
And God is the first father, never causes harm, and only does good for his children. And this is God, and somehow this woman understands and perseveres gently, respectfully, humbly. But she pleads the nature of God against his apparent refusal to help her. And in the economy of God, which is his sovereign outworking of things, this moment, this occasion, this trip to the coastlands, this light to the Gentiles, was foreseen before the foundations of the world. All right? This was not a casual encounter. This was an ordained encounter. It was there at the creation of the world. It was going to happen. When Jesus was born, this day had been established eons before. And it had been established that Jesus would say, no, 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 I don't think so. I'm paraphrasing. And it had been established that this woman would persevere in the sovereign will of God and receive the healing of her daughter. But not just that. The commendation of all God's people across the centuries for her great faith. Trust the sovereign God. Don't operate on his side of the equation. Be willing to be this woman. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of this great woman and her great faith. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you will give us a faith like hers and that you will cause us to approach you humbly, but knowing you as a father, trusting in you, and seeing greatness in our lives greatness not humanly speaking but greatness of faith because we know you in jesus name we pray amen